coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. And that's how I do it. And I rely incredibly on all of the individuals on the team to make all the right decisions and choices for me. And that's where the trust comes. I trust them to do that. And they trust me that I will execute what they ask. We have a great episode coming up for you today. And the man who truly is redefining performance, it's Joe Barr. So many high performance lessons from a world-class endurance cyclist coming up. And there's echoes in this episode to self-talk and what Pat Dively said recently on our episode about our inner voice. So do check that out as well. And also upcoming episodes with Irish hockey manager Lisa Jacob. Before we dive in with Joe, we have to say a big thank you to everyone who makes the show possible. And that's the listeners, the supporters, the followers. We couldn't do it without you. Thanks for your continued support. And if you haven't already, hit subscribe, rate our show on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to check out our newsletter on sleepbeatperformrepeat.com. And finally, big thanks to everyone over at Skill Yoga for sponsoring this episode. We do have an exclusive 50% off their annual subscription package when you enter SEP or SEPR as a promo code or use the link in the show notes. Check out the app on the Play Store, the App Store, or at skill-yoga.com. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Joe Barr, Irish world endurance cyclist and multiple world record holder. Joe Barr has been racing bikes his whole life, for over five decades in fact, from two years of age on a push bike to today. In 2022, from a racing perspective, it'll be 50 years. He hasn't missed a season in 50 years. He's won over 500 races and amassed hundreds of medals and trophies in an impressive array of cycling disciplines. He is a Commonwealth Games medalist and has represented his country at numerous world championships events throughout the years. He's experienced in road racing, time trials, cyclocross and ultra endurance. Joe currently holds endurance cycling records in Ireland, such as Ireland's Wild Atlantic Way, Mallon to Mizzen Head and Back, West Coast to East Coast, West Coast Ireland, a world record set in 2020, and the race around Ireland, an Irish record set in 2018. Today we speak about when Joe knew he was good at this, and his upbringing from where he grew up in Ireland, Tyrone, Donegal. We hear about history and culture around Northern Ireland and Ireland. We dive into what endurance racing is all about, passion and performance, escapism on the bike, finding the way in the world with the bike as a tool, teamwork for so much more than one person, and mindset. Joe speaks with us about his book, Going the Distance, the making of a world-class endurance cyclist, Team Joe Barr, the race around Ireland, and the epic race across America. Now a category winner on Vimeo called Reborn in the USA. There are immersive stories around grit, mental toughness, a bigger why, sketching and colouring in images of riders in the Tour de France. What a ride. Good morning, Joe Barr. Thanks very much for giving us your time. Welcome to the show. How is life treating you? Well, firstly, thank you for having me and, and life is good at the moment. Thank you. Where are you calling in from? Where's home for you? Home today is uh, near the base of the Spurns, for those who, who don't really know Northern Ireland that well, but County Tyrone is where uh, Jill and myself have finally settled. Where do you originate from? It's not Tyrone, it's nearby though, is it? Quite nearby, actually. Uh, I originally come from Donegal. I was born in Dublin, but I grew up in, in Donegal. And okay. uh, where we're located now is not too far. Like, I, you know, we can pretty much from that top of the mountain see across into Donegal. Like, so it's it's close to home, yeah. You know, it's uh, 
it was actually Donegal was probably a harsh place to grow up in, like, but it, in, in my time. But you know, I'm very grateful that I had that experience. To be honest, you wouldn't mind going into that a little bit more, especially we have a good few listeners across the pond in the states and and Canada and Oceania who mightn't have a lot of awareness or education on it regards to history over here you might share a little bit as to what it was like growing up in that part of the world yeah well uh, for those who, who don't know um you know the, the geographical location of donegal within the landmass of ireland is in the northwest right out on the coast um so it is a what i would refer to or certainly my experience is a little bit geographically isolated because the two main cities that make up the east coast of, of Ireland uh, for Northern Ireland is Belfast and obviously for Southern Ireland is Dublin. So there's a tendency for, for the Northwest area to be a little bit isolated and forgotten, really. I mean, it's absolutely stunningly beautiful place uh, for it to come to visit. So growing up there was difficult because we, we get referred to in Donegal as a border county, uh, which was bordered with Northern Ireland. And because of the segregation between Northern Ireland being UK and, and obviously Southern Ireland being the Republic and now after the Brexit issue, like even further apart, like I think um, it was difficult because it was difficult to find an entity. Where I grew up, I was literally, uh, you know, 10 kilometers from the border. Um, so it was it was difficult to understand um, if you were which side of the border you were on, even our accents were were a little bit mixed. Whereas in West Donegal, you would, you know you would have clearly heard a very distinct difference in even the language. Um, and so it, it was. Uh, I think it, from my perspective, it was definitely fine to. It was difficult to find the correct entity as to who exactly you were and where exactly you fitted in. But I had never any doubt that you know that I was from Donegal. I never had any doubt of that. I struggled in the beginning to understand culture in Northern Ireland because it is a different culture, believe it or not. And and that was a learning process as well, uh, to be able to understand the different opinions and, and how you needed to interact with those and how you needed to actually be within them. Um, and I think from my own perspective, I've, I've done the best that I can with that. And I'm very comfortable with the fact that uh, I have a complete understanding of of every perspective there is in, in both Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland and very happy to be able to coexist very comfortably with it as well. And touching on cycling, was that something that you were able to pour your energy into when you were looking for that fit for that identity piece? Well, I think that, uh, I think that that was one aspect of it. I think that my, my cycling endeavors actually came more from my own personal struggles within my, my family circle to, I think probably the word is probably to use as escape or, or to find freedom from that. Um, I didn't have a very uh, good experience growing up as a child with my father's behavior. You know, I touched a lot about a, a little bit about that in the book, where that was probably one of the main driving factors how, how I actually made my way into cycling because cycling was something back then in rural Donegal where it was almost a mode of transport. It wasn't something that you did as sport. So again, that was very comfortable to grow up in. And I rode a bike, a pushback like from when I was two years old. I think then what I found then was that they, as a tool, I seen then that it, there was a place that I could actually escape my own environment of, you know, of, let's call it violence or abuse or whatever you want to call that and find my way into the world 
and it was the first tool that I had, and I and I made the best use that I possibly could of it to to get myself into into cycling. Like, and I mean, it was just, it was a. I don't know what really attracted to me. Like, I've I've asked the question a lot, and all I remember I was attracted massively to back there, and we had the normal breakfast time cereal packs that children would have. Um, you know, and on the back of them, there were color in pieces that you could cut out and color in. And I had this massive attraction to coloring in uh, these images that happened to be of riders in the Tour de France. And I just found myself realizing that that's all, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted, I wanted to be a professional bike rider. And I pursued that. And I pursued that from, from that period right through probably until today. And you were saying two years of age on a push bike and we, we've heard about the therapeutic benefits and the kind of self-therapy you get from going out on a bike and a lot of that resonates with the conversation we had with Joe Redmond before when he would have talked to that as well. When did you really figure out that this is something I, I really want to pursue and, and dig into and, and do a lot more of for my career because you've been doing it for a while now? <laughs> yes, yes, I have. <laughs> um, yeah, this in twenty twenty two, from a racing perspective, it'll be fifty years. So it's a big anniversary. Uh, I haven't missed the season in fifty years, and uh, and that's something I'm very proud of. Um, but the, I think that you know, cycling. When I realised that that there was possibility for me, and it was at the very early outset of it, whenever I, I got involved, which would be renowned, you know, in the cycling world as a, as a very basic club level, uh, where back then again, you know, we're talking, you know, in the early 70s, where, you know, cycling was hardly that well known, and especially where I was living. So the whole county maybe had, you know, half a dozen or eight riders that were riding and you know again they were riding to a, a certain level you know maybe one or two was riding in national level um so you know i was starting from a very very low uh, benchmark um trying to make my way but the reality was you know i was so much better than than most of them from the get-go and uh and and I was very fortunate that a lot of them realized that and, and two in particular really, really supported to try to push me forward. And so by the time I was 18, I won a national championship. And so the the trajectory like into national level, international level amateurs and, and so forth, you know, was became quite quick for me. But what happened with it was it, it maxed out and, you know, and that's whenever I really started to look into nutrition and, and physiology and how that worked, you know, in relation to performance and stuff like that. So my my interest started to expand from just riding the bike to nutrition and, and physiology. What was it like when you felt you were better? Like you said that there a couple of minutes ago. What did you see from within that gave you that sense that, I'm I'm good at this. I can do this, and I I do need to learn a lot more as to how to get better and excel and become even more high performing at this. Yeah, I think it, I look back on it now, like and you know, the sport in general tends to use words like gifts, and you know, they're so gifted or talented or whatever. I you know, I I believe that that's a case to a degree, like, but I think that nearly every successful sports person, um, you know, has still got to work incredibly hard at what they've got or what they're born with and, and how they actually understand what they've got. And when I said, when I make reference to, I was just better, I was just better without any form of true preparation. So I had this really good starting point that I felt that 
if I had all of the other pieces, or at least if I could get, understand how all the other pieces fitted together, and if I could work and manipulate them around my own physiology, that I could move forward with it. And again, one of the big hurdles for me back then, the obstacles back then, was the lack of information, the lack of you know a teacher to actually to do that. You know, we're living in a world where there's no internet or anything like that, so you're you're very reliant on you know maybe magazines or just trying to understand from some of the international writers that you would get the rare opportunity to, to write against and try to learn from how they were doing that. So it was a, it was, I think really what it did was it created a slow process. Whereas today, in today's world, if you, if you were looking at that model, you know, you ask Mr. Google and he'd tell you. <laughs> you mentioned it's more of a journey of discovery. You sort of found cycling, you got into it and you found you were better without preparation. You're becoming more and more involved in it more it's more ingrained in your lifestyle yes. was there ever a north star or were you from coloring in them people on the back of the cereal boxes was there ever someone you wanted to emulate or some place you wanted to get to be it the tour de france or the world during the series well i think that well back then i think i'll start at the end of that uh, back then i i didn't even know that endurance racing existed at that point, you know, all I knew about was mainstream pinnacle being Tour de France, pinnacle being a professional writer. Here's where I'm positioned. How do I get there? And there's no textbook for that. And I, I think even in today's world, there's no real textbook for that. <laughs> I still think that uh, there's a lot of um, what I would refer to. And I hate using the word like because I don't believe in that that much. But I think there's a little bit of luck that you need to be in the right place at the right time. And the right thing needs to happen. And there's this there's this uh, perfect storm of stuff that, that, that tends to happen and there, because there's so many great performers who, for whatever reason, don't actually manage to get to where their performance capability should really take them. And there's many reasons for that. But for me, um, you know, in the early days, it, we we only had access to some magazines and whatever. And what I found myself doing was trying to understand positions on the bike and trying to understand even technical aspects of how the bikes were built and stuff like that. Um, and I did have a couple because in my stature, I'm very tiny. I'm only five foot five and, and I only weigh 54 kilos. So I'm a tiny human being. I had a great interest in a, in one of the older writers called Lucien Van Imp, who was tiny like me and was mountain climber and mountain winner in the Tour de France. So I, I took a lot of positioning and stuff from him. And I think one of the things that, that happened when going through that process was that I got this very broad education in relation to every aspect of what the sport actually brought for me. Uh, you know, I could build bikes. I understood the actual manufacture of the frames. I understood geometrics. I understood materials and angles. And I got to understand that all that aspect of it as well as a very good understanding of the nutrition that needed to go with it and a very good understanding of how I needed to use the physiology capabilities that I had and the training schedules to move myself forward. So, But that was over, it took, as I say, a very slow process and over a lot of time. So what was happening, I was arriving at certain points of progression much slower than a lot of other people. So effectively what happened was I was running out of time. So the time I turned professional, I was probably in today, in today's world, certainly too old. would love to just pivot into the specifics as to endurance cycling. And we're, you know, we were looking at the uh, Race Joe Bar site and there, that little piece that it, you're not everyone. Some of the actual treks races are, are quite phenomenal in terms of the, the distance. The two of us were just talking about and said, oh my God. <laughs> Don't think we could handle uh, an eighth of that. 
what's that whole team like and the essence around Team Joe Barr? We'd love you to go into the coastal and those and those roots and to how they've manifested. Yeah, well, I think that you know the the race to bar series of races you know grew out of the team, and I think that whenever you people often ask us like you know well how did we just come up with Team Joe Bar? Well, I think it's very purposeful in that you know it's not Joe Bar anymore; it's Team Joe Bar. There's a group of people involved in this, like so in endurance racing, it's very unlike. It's a different format to mainstream racing. Uh, first of all, um, the races are are nonstop, so from when you start to you finish, it's nonstop. So probably to put it into context, first of all, what an endurance race actually is before you know I go on is that most people will have a reference to the Tour de France. You know, the Tour de France is approximately 23 days long and it's two and a half, three thousand kilometers. The the Tour de France of of endurance racing is is widely regarded as the race across America, and uh, and it's five thousand kilometers and it's completed in 12 days maximum. Wow. Uh, to put that into context, it's approximately 300 plus miles per day. You, you got to complete, otherwise you will not finish. Wait, 300, um, so, just say that again, 300 miles a day? Yeah, over the close. 12th day. The, the shutoff period, the, the period that you must complete the race in is 12, 12 days. And if you don't complete in that time, then you obviously don't finish. Yeah, so it's a very aggressive race. Um, and again, probably to, to, to add a little bit of understanding to what, the difficulty of that is the race is almost 40 years old now and there's only around 350 people has ever completed it so being so, one of them people joe yes um, i can claim to be one of that elite category <laughs> <laughs> yes um, I can, I can. it was it wasn't always smooth sailing with it for you you back in 2012 you suffered altitude sickness what yes. was that like and what happened well i think that that's just an example of the complete rookie um you know i think you got to understand how I got into insurance racing. And again, you know, people would think, well, you know, he's come through this amateur career and professional career. So just another, you know, evolution of that. And that's, that was so not the truth. Um, I, my second son, two sons, Ruben and Ross, and my second son, Ross, when he was born, was born, he was actually born with a neuroblastoma, uh, stage four tumor in his brain. Uh, I was in the cancer journey with him for, a number of years and uh, my first entry into insurance racing came via a fundraising event uh, that I chose to take on to um, to put in some infrastructure into the hospitals where that had very kindly helped my son and a lot of other families and their, their children like to, to, to overcome or at least make their way through that journey which is beyond difficult and I got introduced to a race called the Race Around Ireland in 2009 so my son was born in 2007 and in 2009 i found myself on the start line of the race around ireland which was two and a half thousand kilometer non-stop race that i had never heard of i knew nothing about it and i certainly didn't know how to deal with it other than the fact that it was going to be a long number of days of fundraising and media exposure and stuff like that ironically i uh, i was up against in that particular race um I was up against the world champion, an Italian gentleman called Fabio Biasalo. Anyway, I didn't, I under, knew who he was, but I didn't under, really fully understand the stature and stuff like that. So to cut the story short, like I ended up in that very first race winning and beating him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of winning that race, um, it was that I qualified for the race across America. I was still in that, my own personal journey, uh, my family journey and stuff like that. 
even into the later part of 2010 and 11. So I went to 2012 Race Across America. I eventually got the funding together. I more or less uh, believed a lot of people to come and help me. You know? <laughs> uh, but uh, and they all they all very kindly did come to help. But I was very poorly prepared. Uh, you know, I thought that you know my thinking was well. You know, I've managed to win this race around Ireland. Race Across America is only double that distance. I mean, if I can do that, I'll find a way to get through it. And you know, but the reality is, Race Across America is a very, very different kettle of fish. And when I got, you know, you have you have to understand and. In the first sections of Race Across America, especially through Mojave Desert and Arizona Desert, the temperatures can get up to the high 40s. So, Jeez. you know, you can go wow. 45, 50 degrees of temperature for two days in Arizona in the day and the night. It only drops to like 30 in the night. But then you have the structure of the race. It goes right up 14,000 feet over the top of the Rocky Mountains over Wolf Creek Pass and the Great Divide. And your body takes a huge shunt of you know, from the dehydration, the altitude and all of that. And because of my lack of experience and lack of understanding around both of those things, uh, that the dehydration and the altitude, I got trapped. I got got altitude sickness. And uh, I didn't really know what it was like. But luckily for me, when we crested over the top of the Great Divide, um, there's a hospital in a little, there's a little town where you descend down to about 9,000 feet called South Fork. And in South Fork, there's a hospital called the Rio Grande Hospital. And I was taken there, and that's really the, that hospital saved my life, really. Joe, what's it like, of course, racing for yourself and to do well personally, but when you're racing for something bigger than yourself? So obviously, you shared there the family reason. What does that feel like internally, especially maybe when you're coming to those points when your your grit and your mindset is very much put to the test? Well, I think, uh, I think the example I would give you of that is that... Uh, you know, it's one of the it's one of the things that the journey of, in, of endurance racing has taught me, which I, I from my own perspective, is the greatest part of my journey. The, the journey in endurance racing has taught me so much, um, and one of the things it taught me like was trust. And I think the explanation I'll give you for that is, you know, that I have found in my journey like to, to trust that life has already prepared you for the road ahead which was something I didn't do prior to that. And what I mean by that is in that 2009 race around Ireland, which I was a rookie beyond all belief, um, I mean, I had absolutely no idea how I needed to behave or what I needed to do. I was riding the race on instinct of, well, I can ride the bike. I just need to ride it for that distance. But on the start line um, of that particular race, I was the last rider off the start line. And Fabio Biasalo, the world champion, was off directly in front of me. Um, and I heard him being interviewed on the start line. And he said, I'm not getting off my bike for 50 hours. That was his statement. I will not get off my bike for 50 hours. 50 hours. And I almost fell over in the start, the holding area, when I heard it. Uh, <laughs> thinking to myself, how in the name of goodness, I can't do that. And, you know, I thought the, I thought the guy was out to lunch, actually. <laughs> right. But what happened was, as I progressed, that the race around Ireland starts, it starts in Trim, County Meath, for those who understand geographic, but close to Dublin. And it goes anti-clockwise around the outer parameter of the complete island of Ireland. And as I progressed on that anti-clockwise journey, I started at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, uh, on a Sunday afternoon. 
and it was not very long before you're in the first night and I sort of bullied my way through the first night and I got and I sort of ha- I thought to myself if I can ride for 24 hours then I'll stop and I'll take a sleep and then I'll go again and so on and so forth. I had this plan in my head but the reality of it was as as the night became day and the day started to dwindle away and it was coming close to the night again the second time around I started to realize that um, the journey that I had just come through with my son uh, I was doing four days and four nights in the hospital non-stop looking after him uh, I already had been prepared for the journey that I was now in back then because familiarity came I I understood what it was because I didn't sleep at night. I was, it was up with him. He would have chemotherapy. He'd be really sick. So he'd be up all night and I was up all night accordingly. Um, so that whole journey had actually started to prepare me for what was coming next. I just didn't realize it at the time, but what it did do is when I did actually realize it in the race, I started to draw a lot of encouragement for myself, a lot of compassion for myself. And I got, I actually got to the point where I wanted to get in the race with Piazzolo, and that's what happened. You know, at a thousand miles into the race, all of a sudden, I pa- you know we passed each other on the road. We were going into the very tip of Ireland, which is a, a location called Mizzen Head, uh, which is the very most southerly part there is in Ireland. And as I was going in to turn around to come back out, he was coming out, and I passed him on the road, and that's the first I had seen him from the starting area. And a few hundred miles later, I caught him, and and he retired from the race with exhaustion, and I ended up winning. And that whole thing uh, was driven as well by the fact that, you know, I, I realized from the journey that I was in that, you know, my own son and all the other children and their families that I got to know on that journey, they couldn't wake up in the morning and say, well, I'm done with this, I'm going home now. You know, they had to stay in it, and there was no way out. And that also made me feel compelled to stay in it and not give up um, and take it right to the very, very end. And ironically, after whenever Fabio Biasala retired from the race and I still had a few 300 miles, I still had to go at that point to the finish to win. The guy in second place had finished second in Race Cross America more times than I've had breakfast. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so it wasn't all over, but we had a small road traffic accident and my service car actually ran over my foot and broke my foot. Here I was with this race, uh, you know, with, I was going to beat the world champion and then this happened. You know, the story of that was also, you know, based on the whole thing with the children where I thought, you know, we can't, we, we've got to get this thing to the finish. And I had a, I had two people with me, like especially the mechanic, like he was been with me in mainstream and whatever. And he literally just, my foot was broken and uh, they got a, a shoe was destroyed and the car, the wheel of the car had gone over my foot and broken it, broken the bone on top of it. And uh, he got a brand new pair of shoes out, cut the straps off them and duct taped it up, put me back in the bike and said, right, we'll have a look at you in 10, or, in 10 miles time. We'll see what's happening. We've got to tidy up here. <laughs> we'll see you down the road. And, As two uh, physios, we can say that's perfect treatment. <laughs> yeah, so we're gonna have to like edit we, all this out and say <laughs> this is terrible for physios to be listening to. <laughs> yeah. So effectively, that's what we did, and I finished the race with my foot duct taped, and I still won, and I didn't get off. And that's that that whole concept I have refined now, <laughs> uh, but that that was the rawness of it, and uh, that's the rawness of how I got into endurance racing. Then I went to race across America, and that happened in 2012. 
I subsequently decided that that wasn't going to be a full stop either because we all have choices around around that and I made the choice after having a lot of you know inner questions with myself around my own resilience and stuff like that uh, to go back and I went back in 2014 and I finished second in the category and 10th overall and then speaking when we consider endurance athletes there's always striking a fine balance between pushing really hard having that resilience that great almost stubbornness to keep going yes but then overdoing it as well like you experienced in 2012 and like Fabio experienced in the race across Ireland how much when you're racing across day night can you keep coherent to understand okay maybe i need to rest maybe i need to understand what i can push here what do i need to fuel myself because if you push too far it'll end in disaster for you yeah how, how do you strike that balance well i think that uh, you know i think that we go back then to the team and and the reason that we are structured the way we are like i have an incredible group of of people around me who manage different aspects of of, of the race you know, I have Jill who handles all the nutrition. I have Andy who handles all the physio end of things. I have incredible drivers in the nighttime and the daytime uh, navigation. We have all of these. These people have all of these skills. But what happens is, is the job of an endurance race is to dismantle the rider. That's the job of the race. Uh, so the further you go, the more that impacts. And... Uh, one of the things that happens is, and you've got to, and this is something that I have come to learn over the years from, from doing the multiple races that I've done, is that there comes a point uh, where you, have, you, you as a rider become totally vulnerable. You have got to allow yourself to be totally vulnerable. So there's a place of what I call inner truth. Right? You, you have got to be truthful, right? A, with yourself, and B, with the team. So the team make a lot of the decisions for me. You're correct in saying that, you know, when you get that fatigued, uh, you don't make good decisions. So I don't make the decisions. We have a, a, a dialogue that we use. For example, you know, Jill, on a, you know, Jill would be, we'd be talking about nutrition. It would be an issue of nutrition or how I'm feeling at any given time on the bike. Well, if I put that into words, I can very easily miscommunicate what I'm actually feeling by using the wrong words in the wrong way. So rather than make those mistakes anymore, we have a scale where if Jill says to me, where are you on a scale of one to five, and I give a three, she knows exactly what three means in the correct understanding. So we're dealing with it correctly. And in the early days, I was miscommunicating a lot of my information. So effectively, they were not allowed, I was not allowing them to make the, re- the correct decisions on my behalf in relation to nutrition, in relation to do I need to sleep, you know, how, how deep a level has the sleep deprivation actually impacted me, uh, and whatever. And I've also come in myself to realize that even from around 2015, when I made a huge turnaround in relation to the biggest obstacle that endurance racing brings in that sleep deprivation i made a huge change around that because i realized that i can't overcome sleep deprivation but i can learn to manage it correctly if i really interrogate how it's impacting me Um, so i went through a full year of doing no racing but just training to understand how sleep deprivation impacted me you know what time it came at when did it leave what did it do whenever it arrived 
I did all of that stuff and then I took it out and I had, it was only at that point in 2015 that I realized what the true understanding of the statement that Fabio Biasalo made on the start line of the 2009 race around Ireland when he said, I'm not getting off my bike for 50 hours. And that was really light bulb moment for me in that I realized that's what I need to do. I, I need to try to understand how I manage the sleep deprivation to allow me to stay on the bike and not be off the bike because that when we really looked at what I was doing, I was able to travel as fast as the fastest guys in the world and during the day, but I, in the nighttime I was more time off the bike than I was on it. So my average speed was just dropping and dropping. We looked at that and in 2016 was the first time that I actually managed uh, to do 50 hours without any sleeping, without stopping. We did it here in Ireland. We decided that we would take on a one of the world body records between Malhead and Mizzenhead. But rather than just go one direction, we decided to do two directions because that would allow me to get into the window of 50 hours. So in 2016, I did both directions and I did 49 hours. Speaking to the, the trust, obviously, in the team and the togetherness in the team, and then obviously the greater understanding as to how you really can excel and give yourself the opportunity to 49 hours with that sort of amazing um, milestone. What's performance under pressure mean to you? It's something we, we've asked a lot of uh, people on this podcast before, but somebody that's managed to really achieve quite remarkable physical and mental feats. So when, when, when the going gets tough, what's performing under those sort of duressful situations all about? I think it's a, it's an inner trust. I think it, we live in a world where we so often lose sight of our inner selves because we're so congested with all the outer stuff that's going on. And one of the things that an endurance race does is when you, if you take Race Cost America for an example, um, where it's over 5,000 kilometers and you know, you, you stand on the start line in Oceanside, California, and you look down the beach promenade and you think to yourself, okay, I'm not getting off this now for till I get to Annapolis, till I get to the Atlantic Ocean. You know, that's a daunting thought for anyone. It doesn't matter how good you are. That's a daunting thought. So we tend to eat the elephant one slice at a time because we know what's coming. As that race starts to dismantle you, as I've earlier said, you actually have to un unravel yourself along with it. When you get four days into Race Cross America, you're not the same person you were standing on that start line looking down the promenade. You're a different person. And and these layers get stripped away from you, you know, and it's like taking off clothes till you get to the point where there's no clothes left and you're completely vulnerable. And there's a clarity comes in that uh, because there's nothing on the outside if you want to get to the finish, there's nothing on the outside. It's all inside. It's you telling yourself that you can do it. And what we, what I do is I break it down into the smallest increment that's required for me in that moment to get to the next horizon. That's really what it is. And there's places in Kansas, for example, where you're riding through hundreds and hundreds of miles of just completely flat land where the telegraph poles just disappear into the horizon and all you're doing is right, riding to that horizon. So for me, I, I break it into the smallest increments and, and never lose sight of that piece that's directly in front of me. And that's how I do it. And I rely incredibly on 
all of the individuals on the team to make all the right decisions and choices for me. And that's where the trust comes. I trust them to do that. And they trust me that I will execute what they ask. And that's that's the two-way street that we have. And, and to date, since I you know got myself into that position to, to do it like that, our performances has only gone upwards. <laughs> that was very evident in 2009 race across America whenever we won. And that, I think, was one of the times whenever that, that complete package really, really came together. That's brilliant, Joe. Great message as well. But thankfully, you've taken the lessons that you've shared today and you've put them into a great book. We can both attest to it being brilliant. Going the distance. Yes. What was it like and what compelled you to, to jot down these stuff and get them out to the people, all these valuable lessons? I, I, well, I think one of the biggest influences in my life has been my partner, Gillian. And she always you know, encouraged me to, to use all the stuff that we would talk about uh, uh, you know, to pass it on to other people and whatever. And the opportunity came, um, again, as these things tend to, you, you know, you would think that these things are all really well planned and whatever, but the reality was, um, I was, I was literally sitting in the base of the shower in my friend's home in Washington, DC, directly coming from the finish line of the 2019 race across America. I hadn't even got my kit off. I was just lying in the base of the shower. And uh, Gillian said to me that I had to do a BBC interview. One of the guy wanted to do an interview with BBC. I took the interview in the base of the shower. And, and the guy did a great interview, like in fairness, and, uh, and it was great. But anyhow, his colleagues in the office suggested that he should write a book about this guy. Two months after I came back from Race Across America, this guy contacted me. His name was Robin Sheeran. He was a BBC political journalist. And he said, oh, I'm going to try and write a book about you. Would you be up for it? And so I met him, Jill and I met him in Belfast, and we had one meeting. We decided we would do it. And I had then one meeting again to start where he goes wrote the book. And every every other meeting we had was in lockdown on the Zoom. So we wrote the book on Zoom. It's one of my favorite origin stories for a book. <laughs> yeah, I do. Fully clothed in the bottom of a shower. <laughs> and that is an absolute truth. <laughs> Joe, before we kick it back to Kiran for the last one for today, we're always interested in, in downtime as well, especially if you're going, 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 excelling, cycling for crazy hours, writing books over Zoom. And something that jumped out on your website with regards to probably a meditative and mindfulness practice and something that actually bought for Kiran not too long ago, sketch with pencils. You like to sketch with pencils. Would you talk to uh, what that does for you and what's that about? Yeah. I, you know, I go back to the very beginning, like when I, when I was coloring in those you know, those images back back all those years ago and in the backs of the Kellogg's packs it back then it was Kellogg's packs. And uh, I I have this I have this love for colouring and sketching and stuff like that. So um, all the design work for race kits and our team clothing and our vehicles and all of that stuff. I design all of that and I, I get great pleasure from doing it. And uh, you know we've We've carried the same kit, for example, since the original design that I made for it in 2009. And we've evolved with it and it's become a brand in its own right, Matt, that I'm very, very proud of. Like our clothing and, and our vehicles and stuff is very, very well respected around the world. Like, and I'm very, very proud of that. Like, and uh, I'm also very proud that we have an Irish company that actually produced the clothing for us. Like, so, uh, so that has been very enjoyable. And I, and I love to sketch and, you know, I don't do so much of it now, like, because my boys are older, like, but I did a lot when my boys, when they were in school and 
do, I used to do some of their homeworks because I used to love to go and do all the coloring for them. So it was, uh, it was really good. It's really, it's a really enjoyable therapeutic thing to do is to, to draw and sketch and make images. Like, and I love cartoon characters that are sketched and stuff like that. It's a really, really cool thing. We're looking forward to getting our Wheaties box in the post with our, <laughs> your favorite cartoon character on the front. Joe. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's a child in all of us really. And, uh, never really goes away and that's it's certainly what what racing does for me like there comes a point whenever it's it really doesn't change from you know whenever i was riding a little you know fat wheel thing like up and down the front driveway at home or whatever like where now you're in a big race and race across america or something like that and you're you know you're on thousands and thousands of pounds worth of bikes and equipment and stuff like that so it i mean that's that it's a great thing for bringing that childhood thing out in you again like in I'm very grateful for it, to be honest. It's uh, there isn't a day in a race now that I don't feel privileged to be able to, to be able to have and do what I do. Yeah, and for those who haven't started with the sketching, I'd say started up. I found how amazingly crap I am at drawing. <laughs> so it's not Gary Larson. <laughs> that's 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 for another day, I think. Joe, the last question of the show and one we ask everyone who comes on is, what does high performance mean to you? That's a very good question, actually. <laughs> well, for me, there's. Endurance race right requires you to take your performance right to the edge, right to the edge. But I think that there's a great experience to to people who can take it to the edge, but balance it without falling over the edge. Um, and that's the place that I like. I like. I obviously, by what I do, I like being on the edge. But I also like, and I'm very very proud of the fact that that we can balance ourselves on the edge because there is a fine line. There's a fine line between safety. There's a fine line between winning. I mean, I'm not a believer in winning at all costs. And I'm also patient. I will go back. There's lots of things that we try uh, to move ourselves forward that in a lot of cases they don't succeed. But I'm patient to, to wait to find the opportunity to move us forward. Like in one step, we're back to the same thing as finishing the race. Like, you know, one, one step further than you were the last time is one step further. So it's uh, that's how I would measure performance is to be able to go to the edge, but not over the edge. Joe Barr, we'd like to thank you very much for, for opening up and, and sharing, sharing really deeply sharing with us from your from your family and also as to what has made you so successful so wishing you the very very best and stay fit stay healthy stay well and thanks very much looking forward to meeting you in person soon yes and thank you for having me and thanks to everyone around the world for listening i hope you enjoy it they certainly will thanks for me and joe thank you thank you for listening to today's episode of sleep eat perform repeat a story of high performance this was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.